This is the CMS Colloquium Podcast, produced by the Comparative Media Studies Program at MIT. For more information about Comparative Media Studies or on the Colloquium series, visit us online at cms.mit.edu. Obviously, I'd like to, to, to thank you for inviting me. So obviously, a lot of the, the things I'm going to say were developed uh, between, uh, I think, like extremes uh, below, below zero cold and uh, like 90 degree weather here in, in Boston uh, at, the, at CMS and MIT. Uh, <clears throat> so, um, so you can say, I guess, like MIT has part of the, the blame or, or whatever that is. So. Okay, so, so the talk of today is, uh, is half real, a video, game, a video game in the hands of a player. And uh, it's sort of partially based, or it's, you can say in a way it's, it's a bit what comes sort of after, after the book I wrote. Uh, so the book talks a lot about uh, sort of very sort of definitional issues about like what is a game and, and basic things about how rules and fiction works. And here I'm going to talk a bit about what happens when you drag that a bit further, and to, look, to talk about um, a bit about how games actually change over time, and to talk about uh, how what actually happens when a player picks up a game, and talk about some of the sort of the, there's some interesting uncertainties about games, uh, one which I'll be getting to, uh, uh, returning to a few times, like the question of, um, say, if you if you win a game, uh, how how much gloating are you permitted to have? Like, for, for how long time can you actually brag? Uh, and I think the reason why that is an interesting question is that it's, it's something that's sort of fundamentally undefined uh, in, in the way we use games. So, uh, uh, for those who've been following uh, video game studies, you can also say it's a, it's a book and a, and a talk uh, after the discussion about narratology and ludology, which may or may not have happened, but uh, which was, uh, at least in, in sort of early video game studies, was this sort of defining idea that you'd have uh, some, some people studying video games from the perspective that video games were really stories and nothing else, and some people studying video games from the perspective that video games were really rules and nothing else. And so, of course, this is, this is meant to be uh, something after that discussion to the extent that it actually took place. So... The first question, or the first thing is, is this question. Uh, can a computer game make you cry? Uh, you may have heard that uh, many people, including uh, Steven Spielberg, recently said something along the lines that uh, video games won't really uh, become, uh, become an art form until people report that they cried on level 15. Or I think it was 15. Uh, which is a sort of very odd thing to say for several reasons. Like, most of, first of all, the, most of the games you talk about as in the question, can a computer game make you cry? Don't actually have levels in that, in that form anymore. That's been quite a long time ago. Um, but, but that's like one part of it. What's really wrong with this question is the fact that actually people are crying over video games. So if you look at it right now, you probably have, at this moment while we're here, there are probably thousands of people around the world crying over a video game because their, their character died, they got thrown out of the guild, that had some of their sort of uh, important friends in. They, they lost a game that been, they'd been preparing for, for, for years and months. So actually, computer games are quite emotional, and computer games really do make people cry. But I think what confuses people is the fact that people cry not over the predefined content that the game developer or the, the, the story writer has put in, but over what the users themselves have generated, like the effort they put into the game, the social relations they build up with other people. So, I think in a, in a basic way, I think uh, games are the sort of most emotional of, of all media. Uh, if you, say if you watch a, a movie or read a novel, you may sort of experience uh, a character going through some sort of basic emotions like uh, having an obstacle that they try to overcome, battling with their personal limitations, finally overcoming their personal limitations. But when you, go, when you actually watch a movie or read a novel, they, the emotions that you experience are sort of second-hand emotions. These are not your personal emotions, but you imagine what it would be like to go through the emotions of the character in the novel or the movie. So uh, 
But if, you, if I play a game and I strive for a goal, the limitations that I am looking at, those are my actual limitations. So if I lose a game, that is really me losing that game because I don't actually have that skill. So in that sense, a game is a, is a sort of first-hand emotion, and storytelling tends to be a second-hand emotion. So it's only in a game that I experience my real self-doubt and not somebody else's self-doubt. Um, and also, I, th I say this to, uh, I think there's a sort of, um, I don't know if it's a sort of representation fetishism when, when you talk about games and occasion, or if it's a rules fetishism, but, but there seems to be, there seems to be a, a certain sort of forgetfulness of the ways in, in, in which games are actually sort of emotional, in, in, the, games in, in the ways in which people actually, uh, games actually draw people in. And that has actually been going on for a very long time. I think, uh, so another interesting, another important point about, about video games is that uh, there are always two ways of framing video games. You can frame video games as, as something very recent. Uh, like this is to the right, we have uh, the 1961 space war uh, built here at MIT. So you can see video games as part of this brand new video game history. Uh, to the left, we have uh, Queen Nofitari playing the game of Senate uh, three and a half thousand years ago. And though you may, you may see that, uh, well, the sort of tools available look quite different, there's also, at least uh, on a sort of superficial level, a basic similarity between the two situations, like sitting, watching something, interacting with it. So uh, you can say, put it this way, that video games are either 40 years or 45 years old, or perhaps something like 5,000 years old, depending on your perspective. So. Uh, this also means that, that when you pick up a game today, that is actually part of a very long history. It's not something that somebody just like dreamt up entirely yesterday. A video game, come, a video game appears in a, in a history of video games and in a history of games. And when a player comes to a new game, they will pick up that game and see that as part of, in relation to all the other games they have played. So, uh, so but generally, so the, the sort of, the sort of big sort of cultural history question is this question about why people play games using computers. So a lot of technology has been made, but people generally tend not specifically to use, say, like the TV or the airplane or the microwave oven to, to play games, but people tend to play games using computers. So, so what I'm talking about is that there seems to be some sort of, a, a sort of affinity between games and computers. So as you can see, like mo most of the things that people use computers for these days were actually not the things computers were originally designed to do. But one of the things that people uh, use computers for in addition to like t word processing and, and sending email is actually to play games. And that's a sort of strange phenomenon that you can pick up a game that's 1,000 years old and you can actually quite easily implement it on a computer. And so the question is, like, why is there this sort of affinity? And I think that has to do with some sort of basic properties on, on, of how games work. And again, we, we're a bit in the sort of background uh, questions here, right? Uh, so this was the sort of a model I tried to make of how you can perceive what a game is, uh, sometimes called the pizza or the lemon, depending on, <laughs> on your perspective. Uh, and so... Uh, I guess you can say this was also something that happened very much here at MIT. So I, I believe a lot in, in uh, user testing. So I was, so as a sort of, I guess a, as an intellectual exercise, I was trying to look at this question of like different definitions of games. And so one of the things I, I was trying to do was propose different definitions of games and to show them to a lot of different people. And so what happened, I guess, quite uh, naturally was that you couldn't actually find any sort of definition of games that everybody would really agree about. But what you could do was that you could, you could, you could point to the number of things that everybody will tell you, like chess is a game, for example. Then there are a number of things like uh, traffic or war that people will tell you is not a game. And then there are a number of things such as uh, like an open-ended simulation game that people will tend to sort of disagree about whether this is a game. So rather than trying to, to say that games are this sort of, uh, I got criticized for calling it a, 
like for making a platonic essence. So like say, rather than saying that games are this sort of platonic essence that never change, you say that games are a sort of a, a slightly vague cultural category that seems to change over time, but where you also have some sort of very uh, well-defined uh, disagreements. So for example, um, what I'm saying is that games have, tend to have fixed rules, different outcomes, uh, valorization of outcome, which means that the game will tell you there is a goal, this is what you have to work for, it's better if the game ends this way than this other way. You exert some effort into playing the game, you feel some sort of emotional attachment to the outcome, uh, which again uh, relates to the sort of issue of game emotions. The fact that if you play a game, you, you agree into some sort of contract, it seems, that you agree that if you lose the game, you will be unhappy. And if you win the game, you will be happy. So, so like when you sit down and play a game, that is the sort of expectation of the contract you enter into. So you can also pay, play with people who's, who don't care about winning or, or don't care about losing. But those people are spoil sports, of course. So, so there's a sort, of, uh, a sort of strange contract. You know that you have to want to win when you play the game. That is what you do when you start the game. And then I guess the, the sort of hardest issue, the issue of negotiable consequences, is the question about what is the relation between like, what goes on in the game and what goes on outside the game. So if you win the game, what consequences is that allowed to have? If you lose the game, what consequences is that, is that allowed to have? And typically, I guess, the, I think a good example of something that is not a game but looks a bit like a game is something like the concept of, of say, noble war. So, so it's not uncommon to use war as a, a game, use a sort of game metaphor for war, like war as a game or, or a game as a war. But you can look at it like this way. Say you think of war as something that proceeds according to, say, the Geneva Convention. Then in that case, uh, we have a, some sort of fixed rules, the variable outcome. Uh, typically, like each country wants to win. The country exerts some effort in order to win. Uh, I suppose people get happy if they win, or unhappy if they lose. And then the reason why war is not a game is because the consequences are non-negotiable. Right? So, so people really do die in war. And that is why it's not a game. Uh, but it's also like the fact it's also the reason why people use that metaphor quite often is that there are some sort of similarities. But the defining, co the defining fact is that, is saying that you cannot really negotiate the, the consequences of waging war away. Whereas you can like play a card game and you can say, okay, let's play for a thousand dollars. Or you can play a card game and say like, we're not playing for anything. So I think that's a defi defining uh, aspect of games is the fact that there's much like negotiation about what you do with the, with the outcome of the game and with the consequences of the game. Which also means that, uh, so any, say like any game involving uh, sorry, like real swords is usually not, not a sword because people will actually get hurt. So that's the way it works, I think. And so I think what, what, so, what so seems to happen historically is that uh, I call this sort of model the classic game model because what I'm saying is that there's a sort of traditional way of making games and then we are moving away from that way of making games now. Uh, so one of the defining things is that if you play a video game, the rules are controlled by the, by the computer, not by, say, the player, like if you play a card game. Uh, you have many different games right, right now, like, uh, like a, a World of Warcraft type game that doesn't actually end, so you don't have an outcome. Uh, then you have a, the whole sort of a series of open-ended games like uh, uh, Sims would be the SimCity kind of game where there is no official goal. So that has also changed. Um, I'm not sure about the player effort. People still sort of exert large amounts of effort to play the game. People still seem to feel sort of happy when they win, unhappy if they lose. And then you have a sort of uh, a subset of games like street games or pervasive games or big games where uh, you try to overlap the game with real life which is, I think, very interesting, but also, I think, the reason why it's also a sort of special uh, type of game, because most people are not interested in playing a game all the time. So, so like, for example, here you'd, I guess at MIT it's probably happened a lot of time that people sort of ran out of class because they'd played a game, but I guess it's generally considered undesirable. 
uh, this kind of thing. Okay. So, as you see, like, so, I think this is also, this brings us to this sort of um, a question, like, what, what is really missing from this sort of model? Well, like, one of the things that's not, really that's not really in this model is the fact that a lot of the time when you play a game, you actually take on some sort of role. Like, you pretend you're someone, some kind of person in outer space, or that you have a, a sort of family that you just uh, build up, or that you are uh, participating in some sort of medieval fantasy. Um, but there is a sort of, uh, uh, there's a sort of argument that sort of popped up a lot of times and also popped up a lot of times in, in both like video game theory and it pops up a lot of times in, in game development. Uh, the, this idea, sometimes it's phrased as a sort of a graphics versus gameplay. So you'd, you'd often hear people making this sort of assertion that all this sort of graphics and backstory doesn't really matter, what's, but what really matters is the sort of cause, the sort of pure abstract gameplay of a game. And you can look at, there's a sort of argument that seems to, to sort of pop up every now and then. It's something like this, so you don't actually need any sort of fictional layer in a game for it to be interesting. You can have a pure abstract game that's, that's great fun. Then many games are sort of themable, which means that Say so you can you can switch the the, the real-time strategy game from the future to medieval times. It's still sort of the same game on some level, and often uh, the sort of fictional world of the game promises a lot of things so that that it actually doesn't deliver. So there's a house you can't you can't enter and so on, and uh, also players often see through the fiction. So I'm saying there's a sort of argument that keeps coming up, and then it ends with the conclusion that. Basically, uh, it's sort of irrelevant to have anything like any sort of fiction or any sort of fantasy element in any game. And in a way, you could say that perhaps it's even a, it's a sort of a crime in a sense, if it's uh, in the sort of Alfred Lewis sense that you don't really, it's, it's sort of unnecessary uh, commercial fluff to have all this sort of fiction or anything be the game about being anything. And this is, the, I guess, the most extreme example. This is the Bauhaus chess set. Uh, which is, uh, I mean, is, which is of course built on the on the assumption that the the form of the pieces should follow their functions. So so you can see that uh, it's probably hard to see here, but so this is the this is the this is the rook, which is a, a sort of massive square. Uh, this is the uh, I can't what's it, the the one that goes like this is the bishop, yeah, that's right, yeah, and this is the knight. So, so uh, I'm not sure which one is the king or queen, actually. I can't quite remember. But you can see this is a, this is a sort of extreme version of this sort of argument that you don't need all this sort of ornament and fluff. It's all about this sort of the pure beauty or the pure math mathematical beauty of the rules of the game. Okay, that comes out quite a lot. Um, it has this prob the, the argument has this problem that is actually not true. Like the conclusion is completely wrong. So I, I think there's a, here's a good, a good, a good example. So this is a, a Hello Kitty toaster. So, so of course you can make this sort of argument, well, actually, you, it, it would be just as fine a toaster if it didn't actually have Hello Kitty. But that's like, yes, but that's like not really the point. The, in fact, the point, the point of the, t the toaster is that you don't have to have Hello Kitty. That's why it's such, so, such a cool thing to have a Hello Kitty toaster. So, so, uh, so you see, one of the problems with, with, this, uh, with this, this type of argument is that it, it posits uh, all players as these sort of uh, uh, purely rational, uh, strategical maximizers, and actually cuts away anything else than that, and cuts away anything like perhaps the, 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 perhaps the players actually care about what their avatar looks like, perhaps the players actually care about what kind of world, perhaps players are actually very inspired by, say, Hello Kitty, or by medieval fantasy, or by uh, playing out fantasies in a contemporary world. But, it's, but, but this argument just comes up a lot of times. And it has a, yeah, I'm not sure, yeah. Okay, there, there's, a, and there's a also a fundamental reason why that comes up, and I'll get back to that a bit later. So, so the problem is this, that, that most games are actually have a sort of rule-based uh, level, and they have a fictional level. So in this case, like, this is a Legend of Zelda, Zelda the Wind Waker. There's uh, lots of overlays telling us what we need to, to do and what buttons to press, like, tells us a lot of things about the rules. There's an arrow that, that tells us we could speak to this, this girl. 
But there's also a sort of lavish uh, fictional world, including a, a story that our main character's little sister has actually, in fact, been kidnapped, and we have to rescue her. Rescue her. And this is, uh, of course, like very motivating. Like even for me, like I have a little sister, so the fact that my, that, that my, the main character's little sister has been kidnapped actually has a lot of personal re personal resonance for me. So, of course, it matters. The interesting part then is that that rules in fiction actually have slightly different or, or quite different types of roles in games. So, uh, as I talked before, that there's this thing about why is it so easy to take a, a, a traditional, say, board game or card game and, and implement the basic rules of that game on a computer. So it, it's very hard to, to, to make a program that, say, writes good poetry or, 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 or writes a good screenplay. That's uh, very, very hard. Uh, but, but it's quite easy to take uh, uh, the rules of a game. Well, I think part of, the, part, of the, part of the reason is something basic, if you, especially if you play a game with, with some friends. Uh, you, may, you may end up in the situation where you're unsure about like, w which version of the rules are we actually playing with. And then you tend to, to sit down and actually, okay, stop, stop, we'll just stop the game, okay. So then you discuss like, what types of rules should we actually be playing with. And then you learn to phrase them in a way where you don't actually have to argue about whether a specific rule applies all the time. And I think that process towards not having to argue about the rules every time is also the process that, that means that game rules tend to be actually easy to program because you te they tend to become something that you can apply quite automatically. And this is also what explains the sort of basic affinity between games and computers, I feel. Okay, so, um, so the, 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 the sort of reverse to that is the sort of concept of fiction. So where rules are generally something obligatory, like you have to follow the rules of the game. Uh, like in a video game, typically the game will prevent you from not following them. Or the, the corollary to that is, is fiction, which tends to be sort of quite, in fact, um, in fact quite optional in, in the many different ways. But fiction actually has a lot of, apart from the sort of pure attraction of, say, the fiction of a game, it also actually brings players into, into the game as such. So if you pick up a game and there's a car object, actually you are very likely to make the assumption that the car object in the game has many car-like qualities, such as it can drive around, for example. So again, the, the sort of fiction is something that helps people get into the game. Um, I think one of the, so as a sort of obvious point, there actually isn't any kind of world inside a, a video game. It's something that you imagine, or the game sort of helps you imagine that world. Uh, and uh, game design is more often about actually helping people or cueing people into imagining that world. Um, and as I, as I said, unlike rules, which tend to be fairly obligatory, uh, fiction in games tend to be very sort of hard to grasp or hard to capture. Uh, this is an example of the, from the game uh, Battlezone from 1981, where what happened was that uh, one of the designers, I think it was Ed Locke, were getting, they were getting fan mails from, from people who played the game. And um, so Battlezone is this game you play on, on this sort of flat landscape in this tank, and there's these, these other tanks coming at you, and you can sh have to shoot those tanks. And then there's in the, in the distance, there's this volcano that has small pixels coming out. Uh, and then they were getting, so actually you, it's, it's a very old game and it's very simple. You cannot really do anything except drive around this plane and shoot tanks and some sort of UFO style things that come at you. But they were getting fan mails from people who said it was so cool that you could get into the volcano later in the game. Uh, and, and of course that's sort of, sort of weird. You couldn't get into the volcano later in the game, but people were writing fan letters about how, how cool it was that they made that game. So, so that gives a sort of problem that, that in a way like these players were like, they were technically wrong in their belief about what kind of world they were playing in, but there was this rumor circulating that you could get into the volcano. And that meant that when, when these people were playing the game, they, they were imagining themselves to be in that world, which included a volcano that you could, could, could get into at a later point. This wasn't in the game, but that was what they were actually believing. 
So, so that's also the, the, sort of, the sort of unpredictability of, 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 of fiction. I guess all fictions, but also fictions in games. So uh, fiction in games tends to, to can often be a sort of very strange, uh, a so, a sort, of, sort of very strange experience. So if you play a, a game like uh, Burnout 3, uh, one, one of the things if you, if you knock out an opponent, so like their car crashes, you get this speed boost so you can drive faster. Or like if you, if, you, if you drive very close to an oncoming, oncoming truck, you also get a sort of like small speed boost so, so you can drive faster. Um, and that's sort of one of those things, right? Um, as I say, that usually doesn't happen in real life. At the same time, at the same time, it, it's not like, I haven't heard a lot of people actually complain about this, but if you look at it, it's, it's very obviously like, uh, it's hard to explain why that it, there is. Um, the, sort of, the, sort of, the sort of more cute example of that is, is, the, is a, a game like Donkey Kong, where there is a sort of fiction level that's easily understood, like Mario's girlfriend has been kidnapped and by this sort of King Kong-type character, and we have, to, we, have to, we have to work hard to save her. Okay, that's quite understandable. But one of the strange things is that if Mario is hit by a barrel, he comes back like three times. So, so why is that? Okay, the second question, like, why do we get an extra Mario at, at 10,000 points? So I, I tried asking a lot of people about this, and people usually tell me, well, otherwise the game would be too hard. That, that's a sort of typical example. Or th those are just the rules. So it, what it means is that when you play a game, uh, you have sort of, people tend to have two frames of reference. They have the sort of reference of the fictional world of the game. Well, I'm trying to save uh, Mario's girlfriend. But when that doesn't work, when there are things that are sort of unexplained within that world, people say, well, uh, those are just the rules of the game. So you have sort of two frames of reference for understanding everything that's going on inside the game. Uh, another example is something like, uh, um, okay, as you said, that is, that is also, I think, the sort of basic point about the interplay of, of rules and fiction in, in games is that uh, players are quite adept at dealing with these sort of uh, dualities between things that make perfect sense within the fictional world of the game and things that don't make sense. So like, why do you, why do you get money past go in Monopoly would be another example. Or like, what, when, you, when you drive around in a circle in Monopoly, is that because you are in a city that's built like a circle? Or is it something else? So I think the circle in Monopoly looks like, a, or like the, the driving around looks like a board game convention. So when you think about that, you probably think about, oh, those are probably the rules of the game. That's not really because we are in the sort of square town or anything. Oh, so it just goes to say that there are two frames of reference. Uh, another example is a game like, uh, like Dynadash. So um, if you play Dynadash, you, you know, you get a, a combo. If you, if you serve three customers at the same time, you get this sort of bonus. So uh, the question is like, why do I get a bonus for, for serving many customers at the same time? Okay, so, so these are sort of examples of, of things that in games that don't really make a sort of sense on a sort of fictional story level. Okay, so the, the point is not to say that this is because games are wrong or something. It's just to, to talk about what is it that games actually do. And I think as a, as a, in a sort of a, on a sort of basic level, you could say a lot of the things that don't make any nominal sense in games actually make some sort of, sort of psychological sense. So let's say like if I wash the dishes, I, I really do have this sort of experience that if I manage to like sort of elegantly like combine like five dishes in a row and like shuffle them and like wash them very quickly and dry them, I do have this sort of rush of, of like, wow, I, I did that. So, so I do have this sort of combo feeling like which in, in games is identified as this like, like points sliding up and extra sound and so on. So, uh, so there's something, uh, and likewise, okay, I, I hope you don't do this too much, but of course, like if you, if you are driving a car and you're sort of in a near collision or very close to another car, there's a sort of rush. It's not a positive rush, but there's a sort of adrenaline rush. So for that, for that sense, it actually does 
it does make some sort of sense to get a speed bonus for, for that, but not in a sort of logical sense, but in a more like, uh, it, it seems to be like a sort of rule, impl rule implementation of some of the sort of psychological effects of being in a sort of dangerous situation. Um, and for this one, people just like say, well, otherwise it'd be it would be too hard. So, and for this one, it's it, I think it just like makes that sense. Uh, another thing is like uh, if you play matching matching tile games, uh, why do the match tile, tiles disappear? Is another one of those very illogical things. Uh, okay, I guess this is an, an aside. Uh, I found this Marie Curie quote uh, saying that one never notices what has been done; one can only see what remains to be done. So. If you play the sort of bejeweled style matching tile games where you have to make all the red ones uh, line up and then they disappear, it, it does make some sort of uh, sense. It's also, it also has a, it's also a well-described psychological effect. Uh, I th it seems that players tend to accept many, a lot of strange things in games. Uh, I, th I have a vague feeling that people are more likely to accept something uh, unexplained that favors them than something that, that disfavors them. So, so if you play a game and, and suddenly, uh, like say, say imagine you were playing like Burnout, Burnout 3 and you're, you're driving happily along and then suddenly uh, your car is crushed by a falling piano, for example. Then, then I think you would be like quite infuriated, but you're driving happily along and your car gets this sort of speed boost. And that's sort of, well, so, so I think that there is a sort of, uh, <laughs> But, but quite, quite seriously, I, I think there is a ten tendency to, to accept things that, that illogical things that favor the player seems to go, go down well, but I think illogical things that disfavor the player would probably go down less well. So, okay, so the other thing about, or the third or fourth thing about fiction is that it actually seems to change over time that if you play a game, the kind of the relation you have with the game when you pick it up and the relation you have to the game when you put it down is actually it's not the same relation. So at first you will pick up the game. You will not, usually not really understand what's going on in the game. You might typically latch onto something. Oh, uh, this is a, yeah, I guess this is a, a, a game about a, a sort of suburban family. Okay. And then you have that as a sort of frame of reference. Then you sort of learn to play it, get, learn the basic rules. Then you start figuring out what's actually going on in the game. Then you start improving your strategies. You get better at playing the game. And then perhaps at some point you sort of discard it or you put it in the pile of, of games that I have yet to complete, which, is, uh, which I think is also one of the things I, I think games like my relation with most games tends to be open-ended. There are very few games, like most of the games I played, I didn't really com complete. I, I must admit that, right? And then, then most, but most of them, I didn't, I never gave up. It's just like they're in the sort of pile or there's this sort of save game somewhere. I will be picking it up at a later point, perhaps when I have the time. So I think that's a very sort of typical relation to a game. But what happens also is that I think there's a sort of movement. If you, if you pick up a game that you haven't played before, it starts in this sort of noise situation. You start with the game being a, 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 a series of sort of completely unrelated re events that actually don't make any sense to you. So I, have a I, I picked two games to make sure that I think most people in the, in the audience should be f uh, unfamiliar with one of them or, or feel that one of them is sort of very noisy or unmeaningful. So, so this is like baseball and, and soccer, of course. Um, you hear this people making this sort of complaint about these kind of games, like, well, it's just like this bunch of guys running, running around with, with this sort of ball, and, and it doesn't really make any sort of sense. So, so when you're a non-player or a non-fan of those games, it, these are just like a lot of disconnected events. Like sometimes the players are here, sometimes they're there, sometimes they're shooting, sometimes they're not, sometimes they're running around. And it doesn't really like it doesn't really come together as anything meaningful. But if you are if you are a fan of these games, what you see is something very different. Like you see, uh, let's take like this uh, Ronaldinho uh, just outside the penalty zone, and you know Ronaldinho can do a number of things. He can 
like play back or he can play this guy forward and that guy might run down here or Ronaldinho might actually try going straight for the goal in this case. So uh, just like looking at that, there's a lot of possibilities if you, if you actually know the game and there's a lot of structure. It's also, there's also a lot of history in it that you might remember, oh, I remember there was this other match between these other teams uh, 15 years ago where we had exactly this kind of situation and this situation is just like that. Or I was playing with, with, with some other people the other day and we had a situation which was just like that. So uh, as a fan, what you do is that you see a lot of structure in, in something that the non-fan as, as, sees as sort of pure noise or something that is completely unstructured. Uh, I guess uh, baseball is, is baseball needs the points to actually make sense of the situation, don't you think? So, so it's sort of hard to it's hard to read that much from this this screen, but 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 soccer is a bit easier. There's more to read from the sort of position of the players. It's my feeling anyway. So I think here's a, there's a sort of way of of describing it, why this uh, term called chunking, which is is sort of uh, sort of well described within sort of tests of how humans solve problems. Uh, so the idea of chunking is that, say, uh, an, an expert chess player uh, has a lot of, knows a lot of different situations, which are not exactly like one situation, but more like this type of situation or this type of situation. So if you, are, if you don't know chess or you don't know any of these games very well, they're just like a lot of little men at different positions. But if you know them very well, it's like, oh, okay, this is this kind of situation where they are on the offensive and they are playing in this, like, in this kind of formation, etc. So what learning the game is to actually collect these sort of n series of chunks to be able to see a pattern in all, all of these things that start out as being noise. And there's, there's been some studies of chess masters, like how many uh, the, the sort of rumored to have like thousands of different chunks or types of p positions that they, they can identify. And that's also why a chess master can say, say process more positions faster and why a chess master can, can remember more uh, chess positions. So and a beginner in chess will have to remember the exact position of every single piece. But the, the chess expert can, can remember, okay, this this corner is this type of corner, this corner is this type of corner, and so on. So the chess master needs to remember fewer things. But you could say this is, I think, the, the sort of fundamental thing that happens when you learn to play a game, or when, when the game goes from being sort of pure noise to being some sort of structure. Uh, and I have some sort of, I have an example here, and by show of hands, how many people played Choo Choo Rocket? Okay, so... Um, so we'll, we'll try to do it live with you. Okay, and it's one of those things, I, I, I own this game, but I'm playing it in emulation. Just so you know. Okay, I do, I do own the game, okay. So, uh, so I'll just like show, show you like, Choo Choo Rocket is this sort of very simple puzzle game, but I think it's a good illustration of of what happens when you go from like the game as, as some sort of noise that's, that doesn't really come together to actually seeing different chunks or different sort of pieces of the game that you understand. Okay, so uh, Choo Choo Rocket is a, is a puzzle game where you have to get the mice into these spaceships. Again, this is also one of those things, I'm not exactly sure why that is, but... <laughs> but uh, Okay, so, and basically, uh, these mice are sort of very uh, simple creatures. They basically walk along, and, and if they meet a wall, they turn right, except if they're in some, some sort of corner in which they follow the corner around. Okay. And what you do in Choo Choo Rocket is that you can place these arrows that the mice will follow. So, for example, this is level one of the game. And what you can do is you can, play, you can, place, a, you can place an arrow, say, like here. Ah, okay, and then the, then the mice will go up to the spaceships. And we solve that level, right. Okay, so, so if you think about it, like, what did you actually, so I think, like, I think the audience here has basically gone from the situation where you didn't know anything about the game, but now you have this sort of pattern, like, okay, so um, if, if you want to get the mice to the spaceship, you can just play, play, place an arrow that points up to the spaceship. 
So you, I guess you can say like you've learned something tonight, right? <laughs> okay, so, so this, is, uh, this is level two. So uh, does anybody have a suggestion? Okay, where? Directly above, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay, so, so, like, I think, like, so on this level, we, we learned that, okay, the down arrow works just like the up arrow, right? And, and, and these are the sort of first two levels of, of hundreds of levels. So, I think also, like, most people deduce that if, if we see a left arrow, it will probably work the same way, and so will the, the right arrow, right? But I guess it's, it's like, we, we're certainly sure, we're pretty sure that we know what's going on now. Okay, so, so if we get to level five, so this is like the progression of the levels in the game, we get to this sort of level where, well, so far we learned that to, to, to play the game, we take an arrow and point it towards the spaceship. Okay, so this is level five. And we have the problem that we have an arrow that points up, but we have a spaceship that is in the bottom of the screen. So we cannot actually use the sort of clever strategies or the clever sort of chunks that we developed so far. Okay, so any suggestions? Here? Oh, yeah, sorry. Ooh. Okay, so, so, uh, okay, great. So, I think the point is that, that actually like this is just, I think puzzles, like simple single player game puzzle games are, are usually very good examples of how this sort of learning process works. So first we, we learned some sort of basic rules about how, the, how the, the, the mice moved and then we got some sort of ideas of okay when it enters, when a series of mice enters this kind of space it turns around and goes out. So we got some sort of, have some sort of pictures and chunks of how that works. Then we figured out, like, okay, there's a basic rule that the arrows can control the mouse, the mice. Then we learned, okay, we can point the arrow at the spaceship. And then we got to this situation where, situation where we learned a number of things, but, oh, my God, we couldn't use them. So we had to sort of think outside the box and learned, learn a new thing. In, in this case, that there's a sort of staircase pattern. So if we have this sort of a combination of walls, we can send up the mice here, and they will walk around and go up. So... So this is like a sort of very typical single-player way of like teaching you one thing at a time. So I think uh, so I think that's a, that's a, I think that that's a sort of typical that's sort of part of the life cycle that you have with a, a game has in in the hands of a player. First, there's a sort of picking up of a game. Then there's a knowing knowing the rules and knowing the rules like perhaps like you. You, you, you deduce the rules because the game looks similar to some other games you played, or it, it's, there's some sort of backstory that makes it clear what you have to do. Then you, you actually, once you've learned the rules, you sort of learn to identify different kinds of setups in the game. So it's not just a million different kind of sort of unconnected possible setups, but some of them are actually quite similar. Then you learn to develop strategies. Then you get this sort of uh, personal history in the game that you, you face a, a, a game a play, a situation in the game and you realize, okay, this is actually like this other, the other night I played, or if you play a game with some friends for a long period of time, you often get this sort of, uh, like a typical, I guess, a card, kid, card game example. You get this sort of situation where, okay, this hand is actually just like when we were skiing two years ago, and you, you remember that. So the different, the different possibility sets, possible setups in the game actually gain a sort of personal weight or personal history for you. And then you get this sort of larger history, if it's say, typically if it's like a sport, like this, this, this exact game situation is just like this other historical, historical game match. So I guess it's also, you would say it's also one of those things that happen when you have something like the World Cup or the World Series. There's a sense that uh, an individual game is part of the game history. So, so a specific action in a specific match is also uh, compared to other, other situations and other sort of historical matches. So that's the sort of the way in which 
uh, when you pick up the game, it, it, it may seem like noise, and then it ends up, ends up having uh, attached all sorts of personal and perhaps like larger history to the different things that can happen in the game. Um, so, so the other sort of subset of that is, is like again returning to the role of fiction. Is that if you if you pick up a game, you don't where well, you don't actually know what it's about. You make these sort of inferences from from what you see on the screen. So, this is the game of StarCraft. Uh, I think StarCraft is an excellent game, but it has this sort of problem that if people pick up the game, they actually don't really. It's not obvious what these sort of uh, circ slime monsters actually do and what function the different units actually have. But if you pick up a game like the Age of Empire series, it's much more obvious to the sort of non to, to the sort of non-player that okay, this is probably a catapult and this is pro probably has some sort of offensive and perhaps defensive function. So uh, so there's also probably a dis difference between what the what the player of real-time strategy games sees when they pick up a game like this and what the, what the player of uh, non-player of real-time strategy games sees. So the real-time strategy game player will probably see that, oh, this is a real-time strategy game. And they will have all sorts of expectations about like how the technology tree works, etc. But if you have somebody who's not used to playing real-time strategy games, I think they will typically use their sort of idea of sort of medieval history and idea of knights and catapults, etc., to understand the game. Uh, so I guess it, it, it sort of goes without saying in a sense that, that this game is, is sort of easier for non-players to pick up because there are more things to attach to if you don't know the game already or if you don't know the genre of real-time strategy games. Uh, the flip side to that is, is that there seems to be a a tendency for, at least in some games, and I'll qualify this, that over time people's focus changes. So uh, even if you are a, a sort of non-player of real-time strategy games, I think it's pretty typical that players start with uh, seeing the game as an instance of a sort of medieval fantasy and then after a while, they optimize that away to some extent and see, them more, see the units more as sort of abstract units that have like specific abilities within this sort of game world. So uh, I, there's, a, there's a, actually a sort of documented example from, from the game of uh, Quake 3 a few years, a few years ago where uh, Retou and Rocher made a study of Quake 3 players. And what they found was that, that uh, players who, who began playing Quake 3 would typically have all the textures and everything turned up high. So it had a lot of this sort of gothic sci-fi fantasy. But players who played for a long time would actually end up turning down all these sort of textures. So to the right, so it becomes more like a sort of fairly abstract uh, display of information. And the reason why, why they did that was that uh, it's, it's simply easier to read uh, the screen to the right, if you're just thinking in terms of like, where is my opponent? So the opponent here stands more out than the opponent here. So certainly there's this sort of tendency in some games for, for people to, to sort of not cease taking the sort of fiction and, and setting so seriously and taking the game more as a sort of set of rules that they have to manipulate. So um, Okay, this I think is a, is a sort of, a, it, it's a problem in the sense that I, I heard some game developers complaining about this, that, that you have to spend such a large p amount of the budget making these sort of uh, incredible graphics and this sort of great setting to, in order to even get people to play the game and understand the game. And then once, once people play it for like, like a few days, they actually don't see that anymore. But you, and so in a way, it's not really part, it's not a, that important to their experience after they played a while but you still need to use a huge amount of the budget just to draw people in. Okay, but the, the point is in also that it actually, it, it seems, or I think that's a question about, it seems to work differently in different games. So it's not like, say, if you play the game of Sims uh, for a prolonged period of time, you don't end up, in, as I, in my experience, you don't end up seeing Sims as just these sort of abstract dots. You always keep on playing Sims as 
these sort of little sort of toy people that you are controlling. Uh, likewise, if you're if you're playing a, if you're playing a game which is about exploring any kind of world, that world seems to to remain interesting to you. You don't you don't sort of forget about it. Uh, and sort of finally, uh, you say that uh, if you play a game that takes place in physical space, so again, like let's let's use a quake example. Uh, actually, you know this this space doesn't really exist. So actually, I've said this to sometimes when to people when they were sort of objecting, saying, "Well, actually, no, there is a sort of space inside Quake Three. Uh, well, I mean, it's a sort of imagined space. It's sort of functionally, it, it works for you functionally, but it doesn't really exist in a sort of any normal meaningful way. But the point is that it's 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 sort of unimaginable. First of all, not to when you when you watch this, it's it's very it's very hard to imagine not seeing this as a physical space with sort of depth and distance and so on. That's also, it would be, it's also basically, it would be impossible to play the game that way anyway. So I think there is a, perhaps a criteria for when people still care about the fiction and when they don't is that there perhaps there is a sort of convenient way of thinking about a game. So like it would be, you could also imagine playing like The Sims, again, as a sort of purely mathematical game, like unit A has meter uh, meter alpha to 75%. And I mean, you could technically do that, but it's sort of, first of all, it's more interesting playing the games, playing The Sims and thinking it's about all these little people moving around, but it's also more convenient in a basic sense because um, perhaps you can put it this way, there's a, there's a more convenient way of thinking about games sometimes. In, in a way, if you play chess, it's not really convenient for you it's, it doesn't help your playing if you think, oh, this is a queen. I wonder what relations she has to the king. It actually doesn't help you for, as, as a chess player. But uh, if you play something like The Sims, actually thinking about these sort of little characters you're controlling as little people is actually going to be an easier way of playing the game. And of course, there is also something else that, in a way, it's a, there's a sort of desire for, for fictions, as in the, in the sort of Hello Kitty toaster example. Uh, it's, it's not because you have to. So this makes it sound like it's, it's purely a question of sort of optimizing your strategy, strategy and playing the game in a perfect way. Of course, there's something else as well, a sort of uh, desire for, for fictional content or a desire for, for, for living some sort of imagination. Okay. As I said, the other, the other part of that, about that again is that, that fiction, fiction has some sort of optional quality to it. So people tend to react quite differently to it. And say a, a player, somebody who has played, say, like real-time strategy games for, for years may not care as much about the setting as somebody who has never played it. And, and, and even within that, there are a lot of, I think, personal variations. People tend to see these things uh, quite differently. Uh, I think it would be interesting to actually have some more knowledge about that, like do like larger scale studies or something like that. Okay, so as I said, there's a, like fiction is something that you tend to, rules have some sort of obligatory quality to them. Fiction has some sort of uh, optional quality to it. And then there's something else about, uh, about games going on. So, uh, a fiction is not something a game always has, but it's something that can help the player imagine the game world. And so in the beginning, I talked a bit about this issue of like, if you win a game, you really win, and if you lose a game, you really lose. And so we can feel that in a way, if you play a game, that's just sort of plain, ordinary life. And one of the, but one of the sort of questions here is the notion of, of the sort of magic circle, so which has been become popular quite uh, lately, which is the idea that which seems to hold true for most games that a game has a sort of time and space. So you start playing the game and at one point you stop playing the game. But the game only takes place, say, like on this desk or in this room and so on. And there's a distinction between a normal game, like normal life and, and, and what goes on inside the game. And so lately has been quite become a bit sort of fashionable to sort of criticize the idea of the magic circle. So pointing out that actually this circle is not really perfect. There are a lot of things that from the outside world that go inside the game and a lot of things from inside the game that sort of go out into the world. Uh, but I think it's, it's important to, to know what, 
when you talk about saying that there is a distinction between like what happens in the game and outside the game, it's a sort of ideal that always fails, but it's an ideal that always sort of uh, keeps, it, it never seems to go away. So, uh, for example, uh, I think that Brian is a pig is, a, is an example from uh, the game theorist uh, Brian Sutton Smith, where he talks about this fact that if, if uh, I don't know if anybody's called Brian in the audience, but, but, but typically, so this is like his example, uh, is that if you say to someone about someone, Brian is a pig, that's of course an insult. But you can also sort of play some sort of, uh, some sort of game where if I say Brian is a pig, that actually means now we are imagining uh, some sort of play world, and inside that world, Brian is a pig. And that is actually not, that is not an insult. It's just sort of saying, like, now we have this world, and inside that, Brian is a pig. Uh, the, the problem is that it's not, not exactly entirely like that. There's some sort of documented examples with, with children playing these sort of games where, where, of course, there's a sort of status in which, say, which character you are inside the play world. And so, so the person with the lowest status gets the most boring character. Or in, there's an example where she, she gets to be, be a goldfish. And like everybody else can do interesting stuff, but they don't really want to play with her, but you can be a goldfish. So, so there's a sort of, a, the point is that it, it's, it's very unclear what the relation is between uh, inside the game and outside the game. So, uh, so it's more like, uh, something like the magic circle shouldn't be understood as, something that's always, always true, that we have a clear distinction between what's inside the game and what's outside the game, but just that there is an ideal that we don't ever really live up to. So there's this ideal that you shouldn't mix sports and politics. And of course, every time there is a sort of big match or anything in sports that can be uh, read politically, that's what everybody does. And, and everybody will tell you, you shouldn't mix sports and, sports and politics, and everybody does. And you shouldn't gloat, you always gloat. And, and this is uh, the funny thing is that, you know, if you, if you are, if somebody lost a game and they're really unhappy, like the worst thing you can say is that it's only a game. <laughs> so, 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 of course, like, like, like rubbing in the fact that they weren't really supposed to, to be unhappy about it, but, and that only makes them more unhappy. So, so it's to say that, that, that the sort of magic circle or the idea of the separation between a game and what is not the game is, is something that, that people do and, and, and ideal people will claim that they want to follow, but it's also clear that people don't follow it, players don't follow it, and it breaks all the time, but it key, it's always there, that ideal. Then the game should tell you in very clear terms that you've made a mistake and you'd have to try over. And so, so if a game is not like that, it's perhaps sort of unfair or too easy. So there's a sort of, I think there's a gamer ethic about a game having to to sort of be just and fair and not too lenient on, on players. Um, recently, uh, if you play something like casual games, like in, in the case of like a game like Bejeweled, there's a sort of, a, uh, there seems to be this sort of movement against this where you have games which may actually be very hard to, to lose. So, so you might, like Bejeweled has a mode which, which doesn't really have time pressure, for example. And it's actually very hard even if you try to reach a point where, where you lose. So I think there's a sort of, it seems to be a sort of reverse ethic for that, which is uh, the casual player ethic, which is like, well, why should I have to lose if I don't want to lose? So, so and I think these are sort of battling it out to some extent right now in different game, in different game styles. So one of the, so what happens is that, I guess it's part of like expanding the market of video games. So there are a lot of people, including especially, I guess a, a slightly, like a version of myself also likes this sort of thing about having a game that's in incredibly hard and then the game telling, you, telling me that I made a mistake and forcing me to like practice, practice, practice until I get further in the game. I also think that's very interesting. Of course, it's, it's not always like that. Sometimes you want to sort of relax and only be told the good news. So, so there's, a sort of there's a sort of development in the way in which you fail in games over time. First of all, there's the idea of the spectacular failure. So this is a case from uh, The Sims 2, where I was trying to set my character up to eat some food in the kitchen. And then the kitchen caught on fire, and the house caught on fire. They stopped the fire. My character got crazy, and he's visited by this sort of doctor. 
uh, trying to cure him of his phobia of fire, as you can see the small icon. So, so this, is like a, this was a failure, because I wanted to do something and I failed, but the failure was actually quite spectacular. And it's actually sort of, it's, it's a sort of failure, failure that's funny to tell people about. I tried to do this and then something completely else happened. So it's true that I failed on a personal level, but at least the game does something to try to distract me from that fact, I think. The other thing is that uh, I think there's, a, okay, there's some psych psychological theory that discusses how people attribute events to whatever happens. So, I think there's a, there's a sort of certain design principle that seems to suggest that I think in, in again, like traditional hardcore games, you often have a situation where you make one, one fatal move and that sort of kills you. But uh, casual games often have the situation where there isn't actually any like one specific mistake you make that tells you now that that means that you failed. It's more like an accumulation of a lot of, a lot of little mistakes. Perhaps you didn't do everything quite as fast as you were supposed to do. But it also means that, that there is less of this sort of humiliating moment where you're told very clearly that you've made a mistake. Um, and I think there's a sort of preoccupation between of, of uh, the sort of changes that are to, to failure styles over time. Okay, and also there's been a lot of, especially like anecdotal evidence, and, and I've heard a lot of people, uh, non-players, if you ask them, they will tell you that one of the reasons they don't like video games is this sort of, the video game telling them that they failed and they, they were sort of wrong, etc. And a lot of people actually are turned off from video games by that fact. But I think also that, that actually agrees to, to, the, to this idea that many people assume a sort of strong link between what goes on in the game and what goes on outside the game. So people don't just see it as a game in that sense, but actually see it as something that bears on their personality. So they feel like personal failures if they fail at the game. So there's a, a I, one of the examples I, I was looking at recently is a, is a game of Solitaire, the card game, which of course is in a way like the ultimate casual game that a, a lot of different people play. Uh, just like from asking a lot of different people, it seems that at least some players report that if they win or they, if they solve a game of solitaire, it's their, it's their sort of own personal accomplishment. So like, I solved this game of solitaire. But if, if, it, if they don't solve it, it's because the cards were unlucky. So, so you can see that that's a sort of, of course that's a sort of perfect, uh, that's a perfect thing. Like nobody actually likes being told that they made a mistake. But, but it, I think it seems that in game design it's possible to, to create these sort of uh, situations where people are more likely to, to dupe themselves in a way to, into the belief that they didn't actually make a mistake but confirm that they were very clever in, in solving this very complicated card game. So that's of course a sort of, uh, a sort of game design ideal. Um, the other part about uh, solitaire is uh, think about how people say like all of, these, all of the people in the world who don't really play video games to a large extent a lot of them have been exposed to some at, at one point, and typically I guess that there's been some sort of uh, avid uh, gamer in the family who, who played some sort of, I guess let's just assume it's a first person shooter or real time strategy game. And the avid gamer is of course like an expert at, the, at this game. And the non-gamer uh, is, is showed, shown this sort of, this sort of look here's, a, here's like Quake, here's Quake 3, it's very easy, let me show you. And then the, the non-gamer says, oh okay. And then they get to try it, and of course, like everything goes wrong, they're killed instantly. They have this sort of immense sense of being completely incompetent failures. And of course, from that point on, they don't like, they don't want to play video games again because video games were very humiliating to them. A game like Solitaire actually works, I think, in a very clever way. Even nobody actually designed it. So, I guess in my experience, it was like my grandmother was te teaching me Solitaire games. So. It was like a sort of very slow, very friendly atmosphere. And she was also showing me that, well, sometimes you can solve it, sometimes you don't. And that's just sort of bad luck. So uh, that's the part about failure being relative. So if you know that other people fail at that game, it, all, it actually makes it much easier for you to accept it. But if you're in the situation where somebody is an expert at the game, you play, you fail miserably. That's very humiliating. But failure, uh, the way people actually take failure is very relative to how 
they've, they've seen other people perform. So as a sort of sum up, um, I guess uh, you could say that uh, I've talked about a few different things. Like there's a, there's a sort of game life, life cycle where people sort of pick up a game, use different cues, perhaps like they played another game uh, in, in the same style. They note like what kind of world, what kind of fiction this game is. And they use that to understanding which kind of game it is. Then, uh, especially if it's a game, game type you don't really know, there's this sort of uh, period of time where you pick up, sort of you note similarities between different situations, like the, note, note, the, the sort of concept of chunks. So the game go, goes from being sort of pure noise like, to actually being something very structured that you can remember. And you may even get this sort of, uh, sort of personal game history and even sort of big history connected to different situations in this sort of game. So, so just like, of course, like if you play the game, actually, if you, when you play a game, you are also, in a way, like adding meaning to that game. So you're adding meaning in the sense that you understand the game better, but also that the game gets tied to sort of things in your personal life that will, will actually give you some sort of investment in that game. And then, of course, as a, a sort of half-real uh, point, which is just that um, the sort of rules and fiction in games seem to provide sort of two different kinds of... Uh, two different points of entry in games. Uh, and the half-real idea is this idea that actually it's not a sort of either-or question. Or it's not about games being sort of imperfect uh, purveyors of stories, but it's actually more about that when people play games, and especially different and different game genres, people actually navigate between seeing what they're doing as being inside a story world or inside some sort of fiction and seeing it as being sort of manipulating some abstract uh, game pieces. And then the sort of the thing about the magic circle is the fact that um, that in a basic way, so, so games, ha games, ha games have this sort of duality of on some level they're supposed to be like have negotiable consequences and being separated from like normal life and at the same time they're also in a basic way part of normal life in the fact that you really lose and you really win but the negotiate the relation between those between the game and what is not the game is actually very, very unclearly defined. So I think this is also one of the reasons why games become uh, sort of controversial at times, is the fact that there is no sort of, there's no clear way, there's no clear there's no clear convention of, about how you're supposed to interpret what, ha what you do in a game to, to bear, have any sort of meaning outside in the sort of outside world, uh, the world outside that game. Uh, that's something like you, 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 you go ev everywhere from like the pure literalists who think like everything and even perhaps even more than happens in the game is something somebody is, is condoning like you should go out and do this in real life to, to the other opposite that of course it's, it's sort of completely fantasy and completely doesn't matter. And at the same time, on the sort of pure sort of rule level or activity level, there's the idea that it doesn't act, you shouldn't, we're just playing this game, it doesn't really matter. And then at the same time, it, that it can become a sort of deeply personal thing that it's very important for me in my life that I win this game. And I think that, that is what, what the way where it, which games become the sort of most, em, most emotional of, of all media. Uh, and I, so I guess as a sort of like a theory point is the fact that um, I think it would be nice to have some sort of better ideas about what that relation actually is between between games and players. It's I mean, as as, as right now, I think it's sort of very early in the sort of theory building process. There, there's sort of a few ideas he, here and there, but I think there's a lot of things that could be studied in in a lot of different ways, and and everybody would be happy, I guess. Okay, so uh, <clears throat> so yes, yeah. Here we go. Slide, final slide. Okay, uh, thank you. Okay.